Hello! Welcome to the Cycling Matters Podcast, your weekly dose of discussions about our love for bike. Bike! 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 <laughs> for bike. Yes. Bike. bike. This podcast bike. is brought to you in cooperation with Ciclo. Hello, I'm Karen. I'm Jan. I'm King. I'm Brian. So in this episode of the Cycling Matters podcast, we're going to be talking to Anton C., one of the millennials who is working very hard to, to create a more effective and equitable transport policies in Pasig City. So we'll be framing our discussion within the context of the COVID-19 pandemic, given the recent further extension of the community quarantine of Ma- on Metro Manila and other high-risk provinces. So we'll be talking about cycling before, during, and beyond the pandemic. So if you haven't yet, do subscribe to the Cycling Matters podcast on Spotify, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and anywhere you can really find podcasts. So just search Cycling Matters in your favorite podcast platform, put on some earphones, and enjoy the discussion. And we'll be posting, um, putting a, um, a pinned comment, which is like, uh, you can... If you have questions for Anton about um, like how things will be like cycling urban-wise, particularly passing or in general. So we really encourage you to leave a comment on our Facebook Live. Okay, John, take it away. Thanks, Karen. Hi, Rob. Anton. Sorry. Yeah, Anton. <laughs> Hi, Anton. Yeah, so thanks. Thank you so much for joining us in the podcast. Finally, we get to speak with you with all of our... And, and ask you all of our um, questions, and also get to know more about you, you know. And I, I know you've been start, uh, you started to build a following. I noticed like you, yeah. time na you had to create a Twitter account because someone was someone made a fake account or something. Oh, I I, I don't know about that. I think uh, I I think maybe the only reason I have uh, anything resembling a following is because uh, my boss retweeted me with a. Uh, uh, the AR panda from Google Filters. So right, right, I remember. that was a little fun, but it is uh, it is quite nice to you know to get online. You know, like you said, it's a millennial thing to have conversations about the stuff you love with uh, people from all around, and that's uh, just one of the wonders of the internet, even at the time like this. Yeah, and I enjoy very much all the the tweets you've been posting in the past yeah. few weeks. Yeah, me too. For those who who aren't aware, though, could you please please introduce yourself to our viewers and our listeners who'll be with us or with us right now, and those who'll be listening to this episode on on Spotify and our other platforms. Uh, all right, Sige. I guess relevant to this podcast. Hello, my name is Robert Anthony C. Uh, you can call me Anton. I work for the City Transportation Development and Management Office in Pasig City. Uh, it's a long name, but we. Uh, brand ourselves Pasig Transport because we handle uh, basically transport planning for the city of Pasig. Now, the, the stuff that we work on basically comes down to improving uh, modes of sustainable transportation for the cities. So uh, we're really focused on walking, cycling, and public transport. So we operate uh, in uh, alongside the city's uh, traffic enforcement and uh, traffic management office to try and get everyone a better mobility experience in Pasig and ultimately uh, build a better city. But I think we are in a way unique among local government units in uh, Metro Manila and I think even all over the Philippines for having a unit dedicated to really working on sustain- sustainable transport. So it's been a, um, 
it's been something Pasig City has had. Uh, our office has been in Pasig City uh, active since 2017, and uh, we're uh, very uh, we're very happy that uh, um, that our work continues and our work uh, definitely uh, remains uh, quite important in the time of COVID-19. So it's only been three years. Yung ano ng Pasig Transport. Actually, yeah. I mean, uh, Pasig's had a traffic and parking management office for a much longer time than that. But then, uh, really formalizing all of the city's sustainable transport uh, initiatives into one office was uh, uh, only I uh, was only uh, really done recently. So, uh, in addition to walking to working on cycling, we are also uh, involved in trying to improve uh, things like road safety. We also offer uh, we also offer and operate the uh, a free bus service that uh, operates around Pasig. So uh, we use the service to augment high demand routes in uh, Pasig City. When there's things like transport disruptions, we also mobilize um, city vehicles. So we have a uh, we have something like a fleet management function also to be able to fill in uh, travel demand gaps in the city. That sounds like a lot of work, and I, I feel like you've done so much in the past three years. But, well, but before we get into the details, no, um, could you share with us why for uh, why did you decided to work for government? Uh, well, I think for me, at least, you know, on a personal level, working in government was something uh, I was interested in for a long time. And I think given the stuff I was interested in, it maybe it was an inevitability from the start. I think uh, when I got out of college, I really wanted to work on things like infrastructure and development. And soon after college, I was working for the Department of Finance. I worked on uh, the unit that worked on things like privatizations and public-private partnerships. And this is during the time of the, uh, uh, the past administration's focus on uh, you know, PPPs to bring in some more innovation and private investment in infra into infrastructure. So I think among the uh, successes we had uh, at the time was, uh, for instance, for anyone who's been to Cebu, the Mactan Airport was one of the PPP projects uh, uh, that we worked on. And we also uh, worked on projects like uh, the development of uh, of PITX, the bus terminal, and uh, lots of other projects that, uh, you know, actually the thing about working on project finance and infrastructure is that some of the stuff that you spend months or even years on, uh, you spend, you, you do a lot of technical work, you try and make it happen, but then, you know, I think part of life in infrastructure is that sometimes it just doesn't get off the ground because of, you know, I mean, like people say politics like it's a bad thing, but sometimes uh, politics getting in the way of projects, you know, there's like uh, trade-offs for everything. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's a, it was quite an interesting experience. And after that, I think, uh, well, after that, I decided I wanted to specialize in transport. So I took a, uh, I applied for a scholarship to do a uh, transport studies program through the Achievement Scholarship of the British Embassy. I studied transport economics in Leeds for a year uh, because I, you know, really wanted to work on uh, transportation. I thought it was something that, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a problem that didn't seem close to being solved in the Philippines. So I figured, well, it looks like I'll be employable for a while if I uh, decide to become an expert on this. So uh, that was really the start of my professional transport journey. And uh, soon after getting back, I uh, came and worked for Pasig City, and uh, it's been a great time since then. Wow, parang dami ng area. So in the gap between graduation and working for Pasig Transport, how many years soon? Uh, not really a very long time, actually. It was really... I think less than a year. Uh, I did some uh, independent work, some research, and uh, I, I was uh, actually recruited into uh, Pasig City uh, in uh, you know in 2017. At the time, I was consulting for the uh, Environment Office, which was handling a lot of the 
transport projects of the city. So it's a kind of interesting because um, I think many more cities should realize that sustainable transport does have uh, very large environmental impacts and implications. So uh, it does make sense to approach it um, with that kind of framing. But then I think after a while, uh, Pasig City realized that you couldn't just uh, house it under the environment department. I mean, there's a lot more that goes into it. So yeah. uh, that's why the city end up ended up creating its own office. It's cool, no, that you're mentioning that you've ha you've had experience in things like you know finance, planning, all the technical stuff, and then mm. zooming in and uh, focusing on transport. Now, could you tell us about the specific the, the efforts on the part of the Pasig LGU? Um, specifically for cycling and making it accessible or even possible um, sure. before the pandemic started? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think one of the uh, big things that you want to, which, you, which we were working on in Pasig, you know, and which we will continue to work on, work on in Pasig is to make cycling as safe and accessible as possible for all ages and abilities. We don't want uh, cycling in Pasig to be something that only uh, high-level recreational cyclists can get into. In fact, um, what we want to uh, achieve in Pasig is to make cycling something that uh, empowers people that wouldn't have the, uh, maybe wouldn't have the option of traveling by other modes, such as walking long distances or uh, commuting on public transportation. I think the goal we have is for uh, every everyday cycling in Pasig to become uh, easy, to become convenient, and to ultimately become a reality. So towards that, um, we've been working on expanding the city's uh, network of protected bicycle lanes. Uh, we've also been working on uh, improving things like uh, traffic uh, enforcement, trying to uh, apprehension of people in bike lanes, and even doing things like uh, improving enforcement of traffic rules like speeding and creating um, selective infrastructure improvements to make to make uh, our roads safer and to prevent things like, uh, um, I, I guess you can call them dangerous driving behaviors. But uh, and uh, one of the big projects which we were working on beside before COVID happened was working on a large improvement to bicycle parking in Pasig. I mean, we know that for everyday cycling, uh, it's not just about space on the road. You also need to have good end of trip facilities. So um, we'd also uh, been working on placing a lot more public bike racks and revising the policies that Pasig has on requiring bicycle parking in buildings. Cool. So no. You know, it goes without saying that you're not the only LGU that's doing a lot of work now when it comes to cycling. There, a lot yeah. of people are trying to talk about, try to talk, like to talk about cycling initiatives, and we see some progress in other LGUs. But what do you think sets your efforts in Pasig City apart from other LGUs? Well, I don't really think that. Um, you know, I think in our minds, um, we really aren't uh, trying to comp compete with anyone here uh, when it comes to trying to uh, do when it comes to trying to do, to do better by cycling. But I like to think that with the team we have in Pasig, uh, almost, uh, you know, I'm very proud that most of our uh, office that works on cycling uh, bikes to work. So I think um, this is something people talk a lot about. I mean, many people say that uh, public transportation would be a lot better if people who are in charge of making decisions didn't travel by car all the time. Yeah. So I'm really proud that uh, uh, at least in our office, we definitely have a um, everyday cyclist kind of uh, kind of perspective. Uh, I don't know um, if uh, other LGUs, uh, you know, if many others have this kind of perspective, but this is something which we uh, definitely do have in Pasig. And I think one of the other things which we've been trying to impress in our work is that we don't really believe that there's much to be debated anymore when it comes to the uh, science of cycling policy. I think 
um, by now when you read like, yeah, actually uh, I read a comment on Twitter about how cycling research has got to move past like, uh, you know, I think there's some parts that have become tedious already. We know that uh, more cycling is better for cities. We know that it's better for the environment. And we know that the way you get more cycling is to uh, maximize the road space dedicated to cyclists and provide um, good end of trip facilities. So um, there's no, for us, I mean, we really don't, um, we really don't spend too much energy on trying to prove that anymore. Uh, but uh, it's a matter really of trying to, uh, I think, translate from the academic discussion about it to selling it politically and managing um, community sentiments towards, um, you know, real reimagining streets. That's an important point to make, no? That that we've all we already have so much information to convince people. We actually don't, you know. Yeah. Every now and then there are new articles coming up where they're more like just uh, like in uh, parang in emphasizing the importance of cycling. Yeah. Now you also mentioned that you you know you're not competitive about this, but I, I got curious. Has there been any chance where? you had to or you had the chance to collaborate or have conversations with other LGUs to share all this information all these these data and also and also deal with the fact that Pasig is you know you're you're in that part of the east that takes the brunt of so much yeah. traffic coming from Rizal and everything how sure. have you been working with other LGUs as well yeah, we have. Um, actually, one of the things that she did in recent months, so she started getting together uh, for semi-regular meetings with the LGUs to our east in Rizal, um, the LGUs like uh, Kainta and Taytay and Antipolo, because uh, these LGUs are outside um, MMDA. And uh, I think what we wanted to do was to um, have regular meetings about managing the transport issues that we all collectively, uh, collectively deal with. Uh, one of the things we see working on transport in Pasig is that many of the people uh, who work in Pasig live uh, to the east, I mean, they, um, uh, the LGUs I mentioned were make up big parts of our residential communities, and we want to find ways to um, serve them better because it serves uh, Pasigenos better as well. So, right. uh, yeah, I and mean, we, uh, we've been uh, talking a lot with them about creating a uh, unified and connected bike lane that crosses LGUs into the east to help people uh, not have to deal with, um, you know, all the horrendous uh, traffic coming from the east anymore. I mean, let's just call it what it is, right? So yeah. we're always looking for ways to uh, to work into that and to um, and to uh, improve on that, I think besides that we've also done good work. I, I think we're also making progress in working with the uh, MMDA, especially under COVID nineteen. Uh, recently, they lent us more than two hundred uh, plastic barriers and cones, with which we're going to uh, deploy some uh, tactical and uh, temporary bike lanes, which may be uh, made permanent in the future. But uh, we're definitely looking to roll that out. Uh, in the near future as a measure to improve cycling under uh, COVID-19 conditions. Nice, that's good to hear. You have something? Yeah, Anton. Anton, going back to an early point you made about um, how there really isn't, it really isn't necessary anymore to kind of prove that cycling yeah. is good for cities, but where in your experience dealing with different stakeholders and shareholders and, and so on, um, where in your experience has the most resistance been coming from? Is it from government? Is it from communities? Is it from, is it a cultural thing? Is it a political thing? Um, maybe you could just, you know, kind of pinpoint um, problem areas. Oh, wow. Well, uh, I don't know. I, I know, Brian, I think one of the things that makes it challenging is that it's a little bit of all of the above. Uh, I know when you when we talk about um, the science being settled, I think you guys are uh, cycling enthusiasts. You guys are advocates. Um, every 
week, there's like a paper, there's a new paper that comes out saying cycling is great. Yes. I mean, it's just the same thing as basically um, the last few hundred papers that came out on it. But I think the tricky part there really is trying to unwind a lot of maybe decisions that have been uh, that have been made over time that have kind of compounded into, uh, you know, both a political system and maybe a mentality that a lot of people have um, just because they, you know, maybe aren't exposed to uh, a lot of the same information uh, that we have. I mean, I'm not uh, saying people are necessarily ignorant, but it's just that uh, people sometimes when you grow up hearing one set of messages and you've you heard um, one set of um, viewpoints and messages, and maybe even, uh, you can even call it like when you've only had one sort of scientific and economic model for thinking about the world, it becomes very difficult to uh, conv- to convince people otherwise, even if uh, there is a mathematical exp- explanation for, for what you're trying to do. So but- I think maybe, yeah, the big challenge really is trying to, um, I think, kind of like unwind, uh, yeah, a lot of these uh, decisions that compound on top of each other. It's uh, the fact that uh, maybe when you're on the road, cars take up most of your, um, you know, they take up most of your field of vision. So that plays into thoughts people have about uh, who is really the majority user of our road infrastructure. And then uh, when you look at the legal system from building codes to traffic laws, uh, you do see, I mean, when you look at it through a critical eye, you see that there are all these um, little decisions that have been made over time that come together, you know, and form the system that's really hard to uproot. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. All right. So, you know, you mentioned field of vision, people growing up uh, with just seeing cars and in normal, in normal before the pandemic, right? Now, what's interesting about Passing City is you have these car-free Sundays in Emerald. Emerald, Yeah, yeah. Right? Um, Can you tell us a bit more about that? Like, is that something that could be expanded? What kind of data are you gathering or or lessons are you gathering from that? um, Sure, yeah. Um, you know, the thing about um, the car-free days that we do in Pasig City, so uh, I think the most visible one uh, is in Emerald, but we do have uh, four more locations uh, mm. all over Pasig. I don't um, know all the locations off the top of my head right now, but then it's been something that the transport and environment departments have been doing uh, over a long period of time. So it's quite interesting when you try to um, collect data about them, because when you uh, actually get an opinion poll of... Uh, what people think about the car-free days. The people who are usually uh, most opposed to them are people who you know, have been used to traveling through the area and then suddenly have to uh, make different, suddenly they have to like turn their um, brains on from tra- uh, from trying to do, oh, I mean, I'm not saying that they, you know, it's more like when you used to travel unconsciously through an area and then suddenly you see that the street is closed, it becomes very annoying, right? So suddenly you have to make new conscious decisions and effort uh, when trying to travel through a place. And uh, I think people who are traveling through a street that was made car-free on Sunday, these people usually tend to be the most opposed. But when you poll people that live along the streets or in the vicinity of the streets made car-free, I know a lot of them actually uh, really love it. And many of them actually, you know, some people even ask us if we can make uh, the streets car-free on other days, like Saturdays, or even if you could make portions of the street permanently car-free, like if you take... Um, one lane or like half the street and just make turn it into additional public space. We've gotten uh, some people that have shared that opinion with us. Yeah, and, and, and to be yeah. honest, like a lot of us 
know people, even our friends, who pa to Pasig City just to go to that car-free area. Oh, yeah. Sure. Yeah, it's, it's so fun there. Yeah. Yeah, like, and yung bencheto, you can, like, eat, you can hang out. Can, I brought my family there. Tapos, we just, you know, hang out lang, sabang chill. Yeah, um, yeah. So you can also teach your friends to to, to bike, learn how to. Yeah, yeah. Sabang fun. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I can uh, tell you guys more. Um, we actually learned quite a bit about um, another car-free day which we had. Um, we trialed a car-free day on uh, um, Pearl on Pearl Drive, basically, right. in yeah. front of um, uh, which is another part of Pasig near uh, University of Asia in the Pacific. And that was quite an in- interesting learning experience for us because the first day uh, in which we had that car-free day was a Friday. So um, we were quite um, interested to find out what the traffic would look like on the Friday night. You know, it was like pre-ECQ Friday night. So we're all looking forward to like awful traffic. But then uh, one thing we found is that, uh, you know, the thesis, a lot, the theory a lot of people have when you shut off a street is that, oh, won't that lead to a traffic overflow on other streets? And, you know, this is conventional wisdom, but then uh, in transport uh, studies, we know that uh, it's not always that simple. I mean, it's not, uh, you know, traffic isn't quite, uh, you know, it's, it doesn't behave the same way as a liquid, basically. It doesn't necessarily overflow. And we did see that, despite closing a street on a Friday, uh, there wasn't much traffic overflow. There wasn't much congestion cost on other streets. Uh, and I think that was a really important finding that we had. Another uh, interesting thing we found um, when we had that car-free street on Pearl Drive was that, you know, you had a lot of kids coming out to play, a lot of kids actually uh, riding bikes for the first time. There were uh, many kids, uh, many parents of kids who were telling us that, oh, wow, it was so happy for them to be able to ride their bike on the street because I think many of them, many of these kids had only been riding their bikes inside the condos. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's great for them to finally get out into the sun. And uh, we also noticed actually that uh, we learned a little bit about uh, public space and especially the value of shade because uh, there's a construction site on one side of Pearl Drive, right? And they had um, the scaffolding set up where there was like some netting on the top to uh, catch falling rocks. And you know, even though it's a construction site, we saw we found that uh, actually a lot of the kids like to run and play there because because uh, the netting provided a shade that made things a little more comfortable for them. And I think you know it's, uh, that taught us a little bit about how even if we can't um, plant tree-lined streets overnight, there are other ways of making our streets more walkable, maybe with temporary materials. And so um, this is something which we are uh, maybe looking for. Uh, you know, we're, we're looking for ways to maybe. Take some, uh, take some of that, you know, maybe some of what we've learned about temporary shading and using that to improve sidewalks. So it's, doing little trials like that gives you a lot of information. How about so we have a question that's kind of related um, on the on the on the site? Um, Caleb Hasinto asks: Has Pasig City's um, comprehensive land use um, plan been updated to incorporate cycling in uh, cycling friendly infrastructure? So it's uh, actually the CLUP is uh, going through an update process now, and uh, we'll definitely have uh, input on that. I think one thing which we uh, want to formalize as part of our uh, planning documents and guidelines going forward is to make cycling really a valid and viable mode of transportation. You know, many people are under the impression, again, uh, going back to that compounded belief system that, you know, many people are under the impression that cycling is not a mode of transport for the Philippines, that it it's inherently unviable because, because it's too hot. So uh, we um, take inspiration from cities like uh, Singapore and Taipei recently, 
uh, who's planning documents uh, in recent years uh, really recognize the role of cycling. And we want to uh, take cues from that in developing uh, Passing's formal policies as well. I actually always say that um, our climate is actually pretty friendly compared oh, yeah. to some other um, um, countries' climates where you could be freezing, you could be dying yeah. from heat stroke. Um, the, the temperature range is pretty small here and pretty predictable. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Uh, one thing which uh, you know I want to share, maybe uh, some pe not many people are aware of this, but then when you look at cycling numbers in uh, cities like London and New York, uh, most of the year, you know, those cities are like cool. They've got winters, they're temperate, but they have summers that are you know just as hot and humid as uh, Manila. And but in the summer in those cities, uh, that's when their cycling numbers are the highest. So it's quite interesting, you know, when it gets really hot, when it's when it gets as hot as the Philippines, that's when you see um, the cyclists really come out. It's not necessarily uh, a deterrent, uh, a real deterrent to cycling. Actually, hot, hotter in some countries, and humidity is actually a. It's actually both, you know, good and bad in a sense because if you're in a low humidity country, you tend to be a little bit comfortable, and then you forget that you're getting dehydrated without yeah, even, yeah. yeah. Sure. Yeah. Okay. okay. How about oh no, um, the passing bike share? One of your other initiatives that, of course, uh, yeah. in the past, yeah. I think one or two years now. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, I think um, with bike share, uh, this is a uh, project that our department also inherited in the transition from uh, from the environment office to uh, becoming an independent office. Uh, one thing which we've um, uh, which we've basically found to be a challenge in operating our own bike share system is that. I think it's it's sort of like a bike lane, really. Like it looks simple on the outside, and there's a low capital cost. But then you do have to put a lot of investment into the uh, into into the back end of it. Um, there's a lot of work that needs to be done in terms of operational systems, in terms of um, setting up things like payment schemes and user registrations, and even tracking the bikes that are used for the project. So uh, we've uh, had some experience operating it um, the last few years. We've uh, had to kind of limit the rollout uh, because of the um, because uh, of uh, just to work out all of the operational glitches in the system. But uh, one thing uh, which we're working on is we're trying to work with local partners to maybe transition uh, to migrate the system towards a 100% um, uh, like Philippine uh, operated system, basically, so that we can have uh, we can have uh, local support for our uh, we can have local support for the system. Oh, okay. So yeah. how many bikes do you have in total? Like so with the um, Passing Bike Share system, we have uh, 10 stations and about 100 bikes total. It's not a um, very large amount, but we are, uh, you know, once uh, we have completed a uh, system migration, then we're going to look into possibly expanding it. Is it. Is it working out? How many users do you usually have in certain periods of time? Yeah, so basically um, when, it comes to, when it comes to users, um, we don't have um, the hugest um, user base uh, uh, at the moment, but we do get a couple of uh, we do get a couple of hundred, sometimes like over um, a thousand users in a month. It's wow. uh, mostly yeah. For the most part, we uh, the bikes are concentrated in the CBD. So a lot of people who use it are people uh, using it for things like uh, doing errands, uh, for going to lunch, going to the office, uh, in and around the CBD locations. Right. That's 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 I don't know. Even if you said the parameter you downloaded played it na one thousand lang, I, yeah. to me that's a lot. Like that could be a 
at most a thousand cars, no? Exactly, yeah. I have friends, I won't say who they are, but I have friends who have to drive from Barangay San Antonio, Shaw, Shaw Boulevard, <laughs> to Emerald. Like they yeah, do it I mean, every day and it takes them, what, 45 minutes to an hour? Yeah, so, imagine that, right? Yeah, so it, there's really a lot of potential in this bike share. Um, sure. program, but of course it relies on a bike lane network now that you also have. Can you yeah yeah bit more about that as well? Yeah, well, I think the thing about the bike lane network, like I said, um, it doesn't look it doesn't look like much um when you talk when you look at the materials involved when you look at the um um the peso cost of deploying everything. But uh, the challenge in deploying a bike lane network again uh, is working through the political acceptability and convincing uh, all the stakeholders that. You know, this is not going to destroy the economy. Um, it's actually good for the city in a lot of ways, and uh, it would it will be nice, you know, to basically get everybody connected. Uh, the uh, philosophy we have when it comes to expanding the bike lane network is that we are working on um, setting up the priority protected lanes on the streets which are most uh, currently dominated by motor vehicle traffic. So our targets for protected lanes are really. Um, the sections of the national roads within Pasig, like C5, Ortigas, and uh, Pasig Boulevard. Uh, these roads tend to be the ones where cars are going the fastest and when the, where car volumes are highest. Um, we're also looking at the uh, most, uh, I guess, car-dominated um, local roads like Maralco Avenue, uh, just to make sure that uh, bikers can uh, have a good cycling experience, even, even with motor vehicles. So we're prioritizing those also because these roads have the uh, tend to have the, uh, I guess, the greatest uh, lateral road right of way. So there's actually space to uh, to put the um, uh, to put bike lane barriers without um, really uh, reducing the number of lanes too much. I mean, we know Naman that reducing lanes doesn't necessarily re- uh, lead to a um, uh, an increase in congestion over the whole network. But then it always makes the arguments easier when you talk to people and say, look. We're not even taking that many lanes off the road. I mean, you you still have to use language that uh, people understand sometimes. Well, speaking of bike lanes, we have um, one viewer who asked a question in the comment section. Sabinya, can anonymous citizens of Pasig put up bollards in their areas to make DIY bike lanes? <laughs> Asking for a friend. What I will tell your friend um, is that while I think there's a lot to be um, said now. There's a, I think you guys are familiar with the movement known as tactical urbanism, right? Where yeah. Yeah. I think uh, where people decide to, you know, use their own like low cost materials to make their own improvements to the uh, to the street. Now, I think if you if people did that though, uh, officially the government might be constrained to, uh, I guess, like evaluate the um, uh, evaluate whatever you put on the street. I think in most cases it might be legally considered uh, obstructing the street. I think there's got to be some kind of violation for that. But then uh, what, we are, what we've also been working on really is uh, developing a framework for um, if, well, we want, to, we want to create something like a tactical urbanism framework where uh, if a citizen of, uh, a resident of Pasig came to our office, uh, gave us a proposal and showed us that they would entirely self-fund it, where um, we would like uh, to do things, we would like to have a framework where we can receive proposals like that and just approve them. And you know, if the city's okay with it, if your community's okay with it, and you've already done the um, the the hard work of raising the money and convincing your neighbors, you know, I don't see why cities shouldn't entertain proposals like that. 
that makes sense, no? Because like, in the whole conversation of like bike lanes, one thing that you also mentioned earlier is that we want people who create the policies and who design these bike lanes to actually be biking. And what better way, you know, to to put them in place than to help uh, to have people who live within those areas, yeah, yeah, you and, and submit their ideas about how to make it work for their community. Sure, yeah. You know, I think that's a um, that's interesting. Um, that's something we've been uh, looking at for a while. I think you know the tactical the tactical urbanism movement. You know, it doesn't always work um, within the it doesn't always work you know within the legal boundaries of uh, of various um, city and national governments. But I think there's a lot of lessons there um, that that we can learn and a lot of good things there that maybe it would be good for um, a city like Pasig to support also. So we're very open to having conversations like that. Great. I have a, yeah. there's a, another question from Jovin Roy Santiago. So parang, what do you think about LGUs piloting uh, public showers? I mean, um, in the city to encourage people um, to cycle to work, uh, especially those who work for employers who do not have these uh, facilities. Kasi, alam ko, like, andayang buildings, so parang, hindi naman sila inisip na magkaroon ng showers, for example. When they thought about, you know, putting up a, galagyan ng CR, walang shower. So now na kunwari uh, marami na nagba-bike. Hindi na kayang magdagdag ng ng shower facilities. So hmm. para dito yung context niya ng public uh, access na for showers and probably lockers also. Para may napag-isipan na rin ng ng Pasig for example. Yeah, I think the thing about showers kasi is that they're um compared to other forms of infrastructure, they're a little more expensive. So I think it's always challenging because while uh, showers would be nice to have everywhere, uh, you're right. Uh, not all buildings have them. Not all have. Not all buildings have them uh, in the numbers uh, required to support um, a very high percentage of um, cyclists. And uh, you know, it would be nice to have them. I think. And we're definitely looking maybe at uh, at uh, putting up more showers in the future. We're also looking at an incentive framework to allow buildings to make showers available to uh, cyclists and maybe. Uh, support that through uh, various maybe even financial incentives from the city but i think from our perspective naman uh we are really our office is really focused more on i guess the lower hanging fruit of bicycle policy and that's really uh you know a safe bike lane network low speed limits and abundant uh parking but uh definitely showers can you know the availability of showers can also uh maybe stimulate and uh incentivize uh, another Part of the population to bike, so it's something where if they're creative ideas, if there was some, um, if we came across a way to make showers available at a low enough cost so that it's economic, I mean, why not, right? Yeah. All right. So we, we've talked about what you've done before the pandemic, and now I think we can start talking about what the Pasig City Pasig Transport has done during the pandemic. Um, and sure, yeah. one thing I remember is you converted the bike share bikes into um, you lent them to people. Is that my right? Yeah. Well, um, I think maybe when you talk about what's happened during the pandemic, uh, I always feel like it's important, you know, when talking about uh, the when talking about the travel disruption under enhanced community quarantine. I think uh, it's really important for people to appreciate how. You know just how important it is that uh, transport demands are still met. I think uh, one thing 
that we all have to realize under enhanced community quarantine is that uh, the majority of people uh, in the area subject to uh, ECQ have been experiencing uh, you know, moderate to severe travel disruptions. I think it's, uh, it goes without saying that when you pull out a public transportation system overnight, that you know, people will attempt to adapt, but not everyone can adapt at the same speed and to the same degree. So it becomes really difficult uh, for a lot of people to cope with this. And we've seen this in stories of people having to walk, you know, for hours, for uh, five, 10 kilometers, which is well further than I think what many people would consider a comfortable uh, walking commute. So uh, I think it's in this context, really, that uh, our operations under enhanced community quarantine have really been uh, with the, I guess, the, uh, the goal of, using all available resources to make sure that uh, travel disruptions are mitigated. So, you know, we took um, basically the 100 bikes of the Pasig bike share system and we've temporarily stopped the operations of the bike share system and made the bikes, made the bikes available to people working in, the, uh, in various positions of the city government. So um, we know that the people working on the front lines aren't necessarily just the people in the hospitals and in the intensive care units, but it's also people like uh, working in security, working to um, provide um, things like government financial and procuring service and procurement services. Uh, it's also people um, keeping various parts of the city government open. So we've basically just taken uh, our, um, our, bike, our bike share bikes and turned them into um, service vehicles for staff that still have to keep coming to work. We've also, uh, we've also uh, done some additional purchasing of bikes. So we, uh, bought about 88 more bikes to uh, give out to uh, to basically issue to more people working on the front lines. But so even if we've basically distributed uh, more than 200 bikes, so this combination of the bike share bikes, bikes that we bought and bikes which were um, very generously donated to the city, I want to shout out uh, the organization uh, Life Cycles Philippines. Yeah, they've been organizing, yeah, they, they've been organizing a um, but donations of bicycles to frontliners and various uh, organizations, and they've been a big help to Pasig City as well. But like I said, even if we've given more than 200 bikes out, we still have a backlog of, I think, uh, more than 300 requests. I think there are still many people who are still experiencing uh, severe disruption in their commutes who have indicated that a bicycle would make it quite easier. So all 100 bikes are out there. What kind of feedback have you had? Have you had any feedback coming from the people who've been using those bikes? Yeah, I think um, for a lot of people, I think this is uh, something that I've found uh, when it comes to bike commuting, even even before ECQ. I think for a lot of people, once you get, once you get them started on um, bicycle commuting, I think they find that it's uh, a lot uh, easier than they thought it would be. It's a lot more fun than they thought it would be. And it's a lot... Um, less uh, exhausting and uh, uh, maybe difficult than they thought it would be. So uh, I think we, you know, out of all the people that have been given bikes, I think uh, I'm quite confident that many of them will become uh, permanent or regular uh, bike commuters. One of the requirements we have in the city when it comes to issuing people bikes is that they have to uh, use the bikes to commute at least three times a week. Oh. So this makes sure that the bikes are being utilized and also that the uh, the employee is responsible for keeping the bikes in a uh, good working order. So, you know, we'll, um, we will be having um, check-ins with the people issued bikes. And if they uh, are continuing to use them and uh, keeping them uh, in good running condition, then um, we're totally fine with that. But we uh, definitely want to, uh, we've definitely also gotten comments that 
you know, in recent uh, in the recent days, we've seen motors uh, motor vehicle traffic sort of tick up again. Uh, it's ticked up a bit, but uh, jams have not quite returned. So the vehicles that are on the road are uh, going quite a bit uh, uh, quite a bit faster than they would mm-hmm. under pre-CQ conditions. So I think you know that creates you know slightly more stressful conditions for cyclists, and we'd like to uh, remedy that using some of the uh, temporary solutions that we talked about earlier. That's ironic, guy. No, since nung, nung pre-ECQ, you could comfortably like filter through cars, and like one thing we would tell our friends is, it's okay. Like biking is actually pretty. You know, it's not as scary because the cars aren't moving. And now that you're in ECQ, cars that are able to people are able to drive are driving at much faster speeds. And I think just this morning I saw one post where. Um, uh, the Philippine Red Cross had to help out one cyclist in uh, oh, no. who who was um, who met an accident with a motorcycle. So of course these new challenges still still do come. But it's good to know na meron palang ano meron minimum usage requirement na three tries. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Definitely. I, I mean, yeah. You always want to get the most out of uh, anything that public funds are being uh, yeah. invested in. So uh, we wanted to make sure that. Uh, at least there was that, and at least uh, the bikes we use will continue to be used for everyday transportation. Okay. Now, one thing that um, also uh, was reported in the news and you announced recently was, I'm, I'm just going to read this. It's, very, it's quite uh, it's quite long. A resolution enabling cycling as a means of transportation for people making essential travel during the 2020 period of enhanced community quarantine over the entire yeah. zone and for other purposes. What? Yeah. Whose initiative was this? Was this something that you uh, worked on? Well, I think um, it was a nice initiative of the Pasig City Council, really. And uh, one of the uh, main effects that we, uh, one of the main effects of this resolution was really the declaration that um, cycling is an essential mode of transportation. And uh, since uh, cycling does support a lot of essential frontline travel, I mean, like I, like I said earlier, many people um, like nurses and doctors who used to be able to take public transport, now have to uh, bike to work. And, you know, it's with the same reasoning that if people are allowed to drive to work, it seems uh, uh, it seems logical that the businesses that support driving, like uh, gas stations, should be allowed to remain open to enable that essential travel to continue. So one of the things we thought about was that with all these people that are cycling to work, shouldn't we allow the bike shops that provide bikes, uh, spare parts, and essential maintenance uh, shouldn't we allow these shops to open to uh, support that kind of travel? I mean, it would only uh, be be beneficial to frontliners if we uh, allow those businesses to open, and that's exactly what uh, we were able to enable recently. Now, this this I know this talks more about travel during 2020 period of ECQ, right? Is there something that's uh, on the pipeline for after the ECQ? Yeah, certainly. I think um, one thing that we've um, seen during ECQ is that. Uh, with cycling recognized recognized as, as an essential form of transportation, I think it would be uh, it would be more than foolish for any government in the world to uh, to I guess walk back uh, any gains when it comes to supporting cycling at this time. Uh, you know, cycling is really bailing out uh, a lot of the services that have uh, experienced travel disruption recently. So I think it's important to make sure that uh, if we get to the point. Uh, where we need to have additional lockdowns or additional quarantines, uh, especially as some experts say, uh, in case there's a, another wave of uh, COVID-19 or any other pandemic, then 
you know, you want to have a good system for cycling and you want to have guidelines that enable cycling in place to be able to minimize uh, travel disruption and make sure that your essential frontliners are still able to work. Okay. So now we, let's go back a bit to the bigger picture. You know? yeah. how, how will we end this ban on public transport? How, how exactly is um, the Pasig LGU working on that? Sure, yeah. I think it's... Uh, when you talk to them about this ban on public transportation, I think, you know, the thing about transportation is that uh, it's a, you know, the systems are so inter interdependent. I mean, the reason there's such a high demand for cycling now is precisely because um, of the ban of pub on public transportation. And I think um, everyone's talking about uh, how to get public transport working again uh, and what conditions you can uh, operate it safely under. I think um, for us, we're already thinking about the, uh, what it will look like after EZQ, because it's something you know we see as very important. I think there are three main considerations that we need to uh, we need to consider when talking about public transport after EZQ. I think number one, uh, we need to have a look at vehicles to enable safety of the drivers. So a lot of people, when you talk when you talk about um, public transport under COVID, many people talk about things like uh, lowered loading for social distancing. Now that's important, but in the cities that have continued to operate public transport um, that have not uh, been able to put in uh, very stringent protections, we've seen that uh, we see that I think there's some cities in the states where the transit workers are dying at rates that are similarly high to health workers. So it's very important to uh, protect to protect transit workers from being infected with um, COVID-19 and you know other viruses in a pandemic. So I think that involves retrofitting the vehicles and making sure that you have um, good disinfection procedures. I think um, in uh, Shenzhen, actually, in China, one of the best practices they have there is that um, no one, uh, everyone who rides the bus has to have a mask. Uh, if you don't have a mask, um, you get given one when you board the bus. And uh, during lunch breaks, the drivers in the bus company aren't even, aren't even allowed to like talk to each other and sit next to each other to, uh, to prevent them from possibly uh, infecting each other if they're carriers. So I think we need to think about um, regulations that are that detailed in order to uh, operate public transport safely. Uh, second thing we need to consider is going cashless. Um, cash is um, a potential vector for, for virus transmission. You can't really practically disinfect it. So I think um, going cashless has to be on the agenda of any public transport operator right now. And we're looking for ways to uh, enable this for tricycles and passing. And the last thing we need to consider really is uh, making sure that there's enough financial support for public transport operations so that you can operate at a high level even with reduced loading. The uh, One of the unfortunate um, feedback loops in our public transport system in the Philippines is that uh, the drivers are incentivized to load the vehicle and indeed overload um, buses and jeepneys because how much money they make is directly tied to how many passengers they're carrying. Uh, we need to have systems where uh, the driver is able to feed his family even if he only um, loads the vehicle at 30 to 50 percent just right. to make sure that uh, you have consistent um, social distance uh, loading of these vehicles. And I think um, we have to have conversations about uh, how much support the government can uh, give to operators in order to make these um, make these uh, guidelines a reality. Given the current trajectory of, of the pandemic and also all these things that we need to work on and prepare before uh, putting public transport on uh, on the green light again. Um, 
how much time do you need would it take or when would be when would we be possibly ready to actually resume public transport well you know i i can't really say for certain like how much time it'll take uh, i'm uh I, I think maybe uh agencies like the department of transportation might be in a better position to talk about how far along we are in terms of affecting some of the things i talked about but i think uh Definitely, we'll have to, if we are to lift the uh, ECQ and operate public transport safely again, I think um, we have to have good answers to uh, the concerns in each of those um, three issues that I uh, just talked about now. So, I mean, I guess maybe, you know, it's a bit of an unsatisfying answer um, in that I can't really say for sure, but uh, I think it's uh, definitely a prerequisite. No, it's okay. We, we don't. We also don't want you to commit. To, <laughs> you're also representing Pasig City here, and because mm-hmm. many people will start complaining. Sabi ni Ar, ano ni Antonio? Yeah, yeah. It's also understandable because like everything's yeah. so uncertain, talaga. Eh. I mean, like you don't know what's gonna happen, how long it's gonna take, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I'm trying to imagine it because, eh, especially, I mean, in the parts of Pasig that I've been to. There are a lot of small streets, eh, diba? and and people yeah, yeah. jeepneys and and motor uh, tricycles, and I feel like it's just it's it's really a big it's gonna be a big challenge to let people go about that daily habit of um, commuting while still maintaining social distancing, and I think that's where cycling is really going to be important. Absolutely, and I think maybe uh, the thing about uh, public transportation in the Philippines is that. Um, we, you know, whether you like it or not, I think maybe a lot of people won't, a lot of people maybe, uh, are not, are, you know, they're going to be mixed feelings about this, but I think, um, after EZQ, we, uh, there's no, uh, there's no acceptable way to go back to conditions that we had before. I think in Pasig City, sometimes I think it's become part of life to see tricycles loaded with like seven or even eight people, uh, you know, and, you know, six to eight people basically, um, just because of the, um, the high uh, demand density in some areas. I think maybe um, we're going to have to do a lot uh, harder work in the government to make sure that uh, the tricycles don't have to operate in that way just to be viable. Uh, I think we definitely have to do a lot of work uh, reimagining what our public transport system will look like. Right. So um, we talked about before the, the ACQ, we talked about um, during the ACQ, so, parang we want to know, like, what are your thoughts or maybe your dreams about, you know, making trans transportation in Pasig more inclusive? Um, but before that, parang I wanna share lang a question from Karen Chrysostomo. Hi, Karen. Hello, um, yeah. So she asked, like, do you think the people who are loaned bikes will continue to bike even when the lockdown is lifted, na, you know, and public transport is made available? Um, so yeah. What do you think about yeah, that? I, I think maybe it might be a little too much to expect that um, everyone will continue to, to bike afterwards. But I think certainly a non-zero portion um, will continue to bike. I think, uh, you know, you guys know that uh, many people do find it uh, to be a lot of fun once you start bike commuting. So I think uh, I'm confident that a good number will continue will continue to uh, to bike even after EZQ is, uh, uh, is lifted. And we want to make sure that... Um, even after EZQ, they are still ha- they're still able to have like a good cycling experience, and that's why we're working on making uh, working on deploying things like tactical bike lanes uh, even during the quarantine period, just to make sure that people uh, have uh, have good infrastructure to cycle on. 
tactical bike lanes like can you tell us more about it oh yeah well, yeah yeah well uh, this is just what i was talking about earlier when um when i said that the mmda uh lent us a, a bunch of uh plastic barriers um we want to make we're trying to identify uh areas where um like jan mentioned earlier are um, high risk areas for cyclists, especially with high motor vehicle traffic. And we want to make sure uh, in recognition of the fact that a lot of cyclists are essential frontline workers, that we don't lose any of them to uh, motor vehicle crashes. So we wanna make sure that we know where these high risk areas are and we uh, can deploy um, some immediate protection for them. So I, I remember like two weeks ago, we were, we were talking with Keisha and then like we actually mentioned that now there are bike share programs, and then like, uh, we're thinking of like ideas, for example, setting up temporary bike lanes or emergency bike lanes. And then after that, after the lifting lockdown, these temporary, temporary bike lanes may be permanent bike lanes. Yeah. Do you think it's possible or, you know? I, I think it's absolutely possible. And I think maybe um, even if some bike lanes are designated temporary now, I'm sure there will be um, strong cases made to make them uh, permanent in the future. I think that um, definitely after uh, COVID-19, we are probably not going to see a return to pre-ECQ levels of motor vehicle traffic for the near future. I think uh, it'll be a long time before uh, all the businesses uh, that used to be open will be open again. And I think, uh, especially when it comes to rush hours and travel behavior, it's going to be a long time before uh, we can take high motor vehicle traffic as a given. And even if we uh, took like high demand for motor vehicle for motor vehicle use and driving as a given, uh, I think it would be a complete mistake to plan our cities around that after EZQ, after seeing the uh, powerful um, contingency that uh, that a good cycling network and a good uh, uh, cycling program can be for cities. Right. So I, I think you're right, no? Like after the the. Um, lockdown, kahit na bumalik sa normal, parang it's gonna be a bit, you know, different in a way. Yeah. So I was just wondering, like, um, Pasig Transport, your team, parang we're, nagpa-plan na rin ba kayo ng, like, cycling-related project, a program? Sure, yeah. Um, after, um, parang, I was thinking, like, personally, kung may, for example, may momentum na, na parang ang dami na nagpa-bikes, ganon. parang is there something like a, a program to support or to keep the momentum going or to yeah. like more uh, like marathon my ideas can share Absolutely. Us more yeah i think um definitely after um definitely after the lockdown uh one thing we are um certainly committed to doing is to uh make sure that all of our uh, streets uh, can enable safe and um, comfortable and stress-free cycling i think um because of the lockdown we have a strong argument to uh we, I, because of uh, you know many things um, related to cycling during EZQ, I think there's a strong argument to uh, dedicate much more road space than we have now to uh, to cycling and even to uh, more you know even as more walking space. I think uh, definitely we have to look at m many more of our roads and really look have an honest discussion about uh, whether we are providing enough for people that are commuting by walking or cycling. Uh, we also intend to continue our um, program to expand bicycle parking in Pasig City. We are uh, currently working on revising the policies on requiring bike parking, and we're um, working to procure uh, a lot more bicycle par bicycle parking facilities like bike racks, uh, especially in government buildings and public areas. I think that when we talk about cycling as a positive thing for a city, 
I think we are all in agreement about it. But do you get a sense that there might be a willingness or even commitment on the part of you know stakeholders to pursue it, even if it comes at the cost of space um, and other things that you know um, would have to be committed to this particular cost? Because it's easy to say we want more bikes, but yeah. do we still want the bikes if it comes at the cost of what people perceive to be problematic yeah. costs. But obviously, if you actually look at studies, it's not true. But that's yeah, the perception right. about here. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I think what um, cycling advocates have to um, have to do now, and uh, you know, I consider myself one really, even though I still work for the government. But uh, I think my opinion on cycling advocacy post COVID nineteen is, uh, I think the number one thing which advocates shouldn't waste is all of the great. Uh, arguments that can be substantiated by looking out your window right now. I think um, the ECQ lockdown has given us a wealth of images that we can point to and say, look, we didn't actually need all this space for cars to run essential businesses, but clearly we need to have better provision for bicycles because that's how people are still getting around. I think um, the important thing for advocates to do is to really show that uh, the trade-off in terms of space uh, isn't the high cost that we believe it to be. And in fact, I think um, we've got to do, I think the cycling, uh, the field of cycling advocacy has really got to, I guess, maybe step up in a way uh, using all of this, uh, you know, all of the images that are available, available to us right now uh, that are being given to us during the lockdown. I mean, we can't, um, uh, we can't, we basically have to make it clear that going back to, going back to normal isn't something uh, acceptable anymore, uh, and it's not something that's going to. It's not. It's not something that's going to help us uh, when we have another pandemic like this. Being an insider in 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 government, do you have optimism about this? Um, do you feel like um, I don't know your I collaborators? Think, yeah. Well, uh, I think I have to. I, I think uh, Brian, maybe you know, I might be the wrong person to ask about that because uh, when you are a transport planner. I think this is a field that self-selects for optimists. Uh, when you're, <laughs> when you're um, transforming a uh, transport system, I think there's no way to do that unless you naturally have uh, a you know a vision of the future that's better than what we have today. You know, I wouldn't be in this job without it. So you know, if you ask me whether I'm uh, optimistic or not, you know, I think um, there's always you know there are always opportunities to. Um, to win, to win more battles and to make things better, and I think, um, I think especially with um, COVID, you know, I'm not going to say it's a silver lining. Certainly, this situation we're in is uh, still quite serious. There's still a lot of people um, that are, uh, you know, they're facing great difficulties because of everything we're going through. But I think maybe for um, cycling advocates, uh, we've got to, you know, we've got to latch onto this and make sure that um, people recognize uh, cycling for, you know, being the essential mode of transportation that it is, and that it's really bailing out a lot of people right now. You know, a lot of people actually overlook the fact that cycling-friendly countries, you know, they don't they don't come in nature. They're actually produced and, and hard fought, hard won actually yeah. for, for many of these countries. Oh yeah. I'm really, I'm, we're really glad you're you're doing such such things in passing. Oh yeah, well we're super happy. I mean that uh, I know we're happy that you know there um, you know we can have hangouts like this and that we can 
you know, keep the you know keep the culture going, keep the um, discussion going. And I think it'll be I think in the coming uh, months, especially, it's uh, we're going to need all the help we can get uh, from the public, from the people who don't work in government, to make sure uh, that these arguments are carried through. Yes, certainly. And speaking of the public, I'll bring up um, some some questions that were unanswered in the comments. Um, so. King Francis Ocampo asks, question, what's your sense on national government giving priorities to biking or walking post-ECQ or in the new normal scenario? So what do you think, like, national government thinks? I don't know. <laughs> I can't really um, speak directly for the national government. I do know that um, in uh, Congress, there have been... Uh, uh, advocates supportive of sustainable transport. I know that um, there's a draft bill uh, prepared by the uh, guys at Alt Mobility Philippines called the Magna Carta for Commuters that uh, has that makes you know really sustainable transport like walking and cycling as uh, central parts of transport policy going forward. I mean that's what the bill wants to do. So I think maybe it's a um, matter of making sure that the technical people. You know there are many. Um, good technical people in national government. And unfortunately, uh, the reality of working in government is that, you know, for political reasons, like we discussed earlier, uh, the logical scientific arguments don't always uh, get the most amplification. But I think the, um, I think maybe the people who have advocated for the Magna Carta for commuters and the, uh, the lawmakers and officials that have championed it in both the legislative and executive branches should really, uh, you know, I think this is a great opportunity for them to um, to highlight the arguments they've already made. So I think um, at the national level, there's definitely room for improvement. But I think uh, I think there will be some new momentum that can uh, carry some of those arguments through. Okay. So um, Caleb has, has seen to ask, what are your thoughts on electronic uh, electronic electric scooters? Oh yeah. Um, well, actually, one thing um, which I also tell people is that. I, I actually commuted with an electric scooter for a couple of um, for a couple of months, almost a year. Um, I started out on a bike in 2017. I was uh, then I went to traveling on an uh, electric scooter for a while, and actually, uh, my wife still uses one uh, every day. Of course, now uh, that she uh, works that she uh, works at home a lot of the time, uh, you know, she doesn't get to use it anymore. But you know, biking and using light electric transport is a big part of our lives, and I think it's something which the government should support a lot more going forward. Uh, light electric vehicles are, you know, they're incredibly energy efficient. Um, they're good for the environment. They uh, don't, um, they're really good when it comes to uh, transportation that maintains a, uh, you know, a good level of air quality. And I think uh, the cities that are the most progressive in the world are um, doing some good stuff to enable people to uh, choose light electric transport over, let's say, buying a car. So I think that's... Um, a good framework for how we should approach them going forward. Okay, <clears throat> sorry. Um, okay, so this one is already answered. Marco Gomez's question was already answered before. <clears throat> I think the last one is from Omi Castanier. Um, oh yeah. Yeah, Rob, are you exploring on doing anything about the supply of private parking in commercial areas in order to decrease demand for vehicles and increase demand for bicycles? Well, uh, like I mentioned earlier, we are um, reviewing the PASIG uh, requirements for bicycle parking. Actually, 
Um, in uh, Pasig has a local ordinance that requires all buildings to have bicycle parking. But uh, one thing which uh, we want to work on, which we had been working on pre-ECQ, is uh, uh, rolling out implementing rules and regulations that that specify a um, compliance requirement. You can't just put up, you know, one bus, one rusty bike rack in a shopping mall and say that you've complied. Uh, we want to make sure that uh, that whenever you have a uh, development in Pasig, that a uh, percentage of the uh, built parking space is made available as parking space for bikes because we want to make sure that bike parking is uh, uh, number, not just available but also um, available in a decent manner. I think anyone who's um, cycled to uh, commute before, you know, it's always a nightmare when you have a nice bike and you have to throw it on a pile of like 20 other bikes and then yeah. uh, you know, it's scratched and then your brake rotor gets uh, bent and it's not a good experience. So we want to make sure that even parking your bike is going to be a decent experience in passing. It doesn't even have to be a, a fancy bike if, if you love your bike. If, if you, you love your bike, right? You want to take care of it, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I personally have follow-up questions like based on sure. the past yeah. question. Um, uh, you, you also mentioned, you mentioned like earlier in the discussion about people bringing up plans like for, for, gover for LGUs to maybe approve. So how... How do you think, like, for example, if, if there's this one person or a group of people, like, oh, they want to propose certain things that they want their LGUs to um, accomplish, like, in terms of transpo, like, how can they go about it? Like, where's, what's the first thing they need to do? What Can they just tweet it at you? Or, yeah. Is <laughs> like it every day. <laughs> or write a letter or something? Well, I'll be very honest with you guys. Um, the part of the challenge of working in government is that uh, you know, everyone has, uh, you know, I, I'm not going to say that public opinion is a bad thing or like um, people expressing their opinions about projects to government is a bad thing. But the best way in which uh, you can make a proposal happen with government, you know, to be completely honest, is if uh, you can come to government in a way that minimizes the staff work required. So, I mean, if you come to government with a proposal that requires uh, somebody in government to dedicate a lot of staff time, a lot of staff energy, a lot of staff like, you know, uh, even emotional capacity to, to deal with the stress of like talking to all these people and uh, re and like uh, breaking all of these political deadlocks, then uh, it's not going to be something that's going to be easy for government to roll out, which is why uh, when it comes to things like tactical urbanism, I think there is a good potential there for, let's say, if you can come to government with a project, like um, you want to put up your own uh, let's say, small uh, intersection improvement, uh, and you already have the traffic cones, you already have the pain, you're, you have people who are willing to work for you, and, um, and you just want the government to say yes and not pull your cones out. So I think um, the, there's an opportunity for um, projects like that, and I think it's good for governments to have a framework for things like that, because uh, if we can encourage... Uh, if we can encourage uh, people who are willing to improve their uh, communities in their own way uh, and then support those projects with the government investment going forward, because in a way they can become kind of like test cases for um, further government investment, then I think uh, those sorts of uh, projects, those sorts of, those sorts of proposals where uh, it becomes more of a partnership as opposed to kind of just tweeting a wish list at government, then I think that stuff can get, um, has a good potential for being supported. I'm starting a GoFundMe for um, <laughs> um, 
Get by clean paint. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think maybe um, the other uh, thing that makes it easy for government is, uh, you know, if people, of course, not saying that, um, you know, we don't want, of course, uh, to encourage people to take money out of their own pockets and provide services that government um, should be already in charge of. But one thing that really makes it easier for uh, workers in government is if, you know, with your proposal, you've already uh, organized people politically. Uh, if people participate instead of just, uh, you know, instead of just like, you know, you can air your sentiments. But then one thing that really helps us is that, um, you know, if you really want a bike lane in your neighborhood, if you can be the one to, let's say, talk to your neighbors and get everyone to agree and uh, help government out when it comes to building that consensus. I think um, that's where, you know, at least for people in government who want to do, who want to do the right thing, uh, it's really a big help to us for people to do that, to do that. All right. Uh, there's a follow. There is um, a question that just came in now um, from Prince Magtulis. In terms of local government budgeting, does the shift to more sustainable transport also also just well? Is it also sustainable financially for LGUs? I'm assuming yeah. it works like e-money for banks where large investments are needed upfront before earnings accrue through the years. Or am I wrong? Consider also those who may get affected, such as PUVs. Would they need cash aid at the start of the shift? Well, I think it uh, depends on what you're trying to achieve. Um, there's, uh, again, like we were talking about earlier, there is a wealth of science that demonstrates um, the overwhelming economic benefits of investing in sustainable transport infrastructure. I think if you um, if you have a, uh, a lane that's mixed traffic that's used mostly for motor vehicles, uh, when you put in uh, together the economic cost of congestion, of air pollution, and of maintenance, uh, it ends up becoming a continuing um, economic and financial drain. But if you uh, convert that same uh, that same uh, area of road into like a bike lane or sidewalk or a mix of both, then it actually saves the community uh, money economically because of all the uh, benefits it has for the city. Uh, and uh, and even financially, uh, sustainable transport infra infrastructure tends to be uh, much lower cost than building infrastructure for motor vehicles. But when it comes to things like uh, like investing to, uh, investing to ensure a cons consistently high level of service from public transport, when you talk about um, government having to uh, uh, having to take responsibility for service levels and putting money out so that uh, so that the financial risk isn't on the private sector. Uh, it does cost money and it requires a continuing um, a continually replenished fund to sustain public transport operations. But I think the other good thing about that is that uh, there is also again a wealth of science that justifies uh, that shows that um, that uh, government investment in subsidizing, a high level of public transport provision uh, is uh, quite economical and ends up paying the community back, uh, you know, many times over. Okay, and I I have a like I just I want to get your opinion on this because um I think a week ago I when the Starbucks photo came out I remember seeing a tweet saying that like oh it's okay that people are in cars because they're social distancing naman eh. so what can you say about that because right like you were saying earlier that like advocacy is very important, so we have to like shift minds of like people who are have a very strict yeah. mindset. So if people think that like being in cars is like social distancing, so what what do you have to say about that? 
Well, I, I think the thing about that argument really is that you have to appreciate that not just in terms of the people inside the vehicles, but then um, if you extend uh, the logic of that argument, what does it mean for the rest of the city? And what we can see really is that um, why are uh, trains so crowded? Why are buses so crowded? Um, why are um, even things like sidewalks and public markets so crowded? Um, it's really because we have so much urban land um, taken over by uh, cars, uh, by the space um, you know, between uh, driver and the car doors, and even by um, infrastructure that's um, dedicated to cars and which can only be safely used by cars, that um, the remaining space for non-car travel ends up becoming so crowded. So I think um, that's uh, something which, uh, you know, that's a point which has to come across clearly that yes, um, people inside a car can social distance, but then if you center all of your policy around enabling social distancing in cars, then you take away the ability of everybody else to um, physically distance. And I don't think that, I don't think any uh, policymaker should see that as an acceptable outcome. That's right. Actually, in the context of COVID-19, they're now investigating the, the correlation between particulates in the air and severity of symptoms. Yeah. So the congestion that we've been experiencing might actually have um, made it worse for us um, yeah. facing a, a pandemic and future ones in the future as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think um, it's a it's also an important point to make that uh, uh, air pollution actually, um, you know, air pollution actually um, kills so many people every year. And, uh, you know, again, this is not a silver lining that I'm talking about, but there are already papers um, coming out to show that the reduction in air pollution from um, reduced uh, economic activity during COVID-19, uh, the number of lives saved from that might actually be higher than all the people actually dying from the disease. Now, this is not to say that COVID-19 is a good thing. I'm not about to go thank you coronavirus or anything like that. But then uh, I think it's important to show that um, the normal that we had pre-COVID-19 was not something, you know, it wasn't the normal that we should have uh, considered acceptable by any means. So, and, you know, we know that um, we're starting to see more research about the sources of air pollution. And uh, even in Euro 4 vehicles or even electric vehicles, um, there's a lot There's a lot of air pollution that comes from what they call non-exhaust sources. So if you're driving a car, um, there might not be that much smoke coming out of your tailpipe, but there's a lot of particulate matter coming from your brake pads and coming from your tires just because of the very heavy vehicles that everyone's using. And these particulates also uh, make people, uh, put people at higher risk of dying from things like COVID-19. So I think what we have to see is that um, there's got to be a better way of communicating this data. There's got to be uh, more conversations about the kind of choices we're making as far as transport. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so we have to wrap up this discussion, which was such a fruitful discussion. So thank you so much, Anton, for taking the time to yeah. us finally have this discussion. And thank you to everyone who participated. You guys had really great questions. Thank you so much for contribu con contributing to the discussion. So without... Okay, Without further ado, subscribe to the Cycling Matters podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or anywhere you can find podcasts. Just search Cycling Matters on your favorite podcast platform while you're staying at home. <laughs> so just put on some headphones yeah, and, and enjoy the discussion. And just to let you know, this live episode will be uploaded to our podcast platforms for easy future listening. Check it out. <laughs> um, <laughs> 
You can catch more of Cycling Matters on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, or on our website at cyclingmatters.ph. So thanks so much for tuning in. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Cycling Matters podcast. Until then, if you have to ride, ride, and and stay safe, Philippines. Bye. Bye. Thank you, Anton. Happy bye, bye, bye. Thank you. Thank you. Bye.